Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. It is that special time of the year known as festival season, and I am reporting from one of the major film events of the fall, the Toronto Film Festival. It runs from September 8th to the 18th, and throughout this year's festival, I will be recording podcasts on the ground with a rotating crew of Film Comment contributors and special guests covering all the highs and lows of this year's lineup. So follow along on filmcomment.com. The last episode as I said was recorded at an ungodly obscene time late in the night and I think this is also a kind of ungodly time to record a podcast at a festival it's bright and early and I'm grateful for the guests who have joined me with their cups of coffee uh, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves first of all we have a Toronto native yeah. on the podcast at the Toronto Film Festival. Uh, I'm Adam Naiman. I'm a contributing editor for Cinemascope. I write for The Ringer. And if you listen carefully, you can hear Pulp's Common People playing behind me in our undisclosed uh, location. Yeah, yeah and uh, just uh, apologies to listeners for any background noise. But, you know, we are on the ground. This is on the ground reportage. So, you know, there yeah. might be interruptions and, and ambiance. Vadim? Vadim Rizov, Director of Editorial Operations at Filmmaker Magazine, a quarterly publication. Well then, And Beatrice, who was, who was here a couple episodes ago. Um, yes, hi, I'm Beatrice Weiza. I'm an editor at Criterion and critic for a bunch of places. Great. I think a movie people have been really excited about here and one that I just saw last night, and frankly, not to be hyperbolic, but... It may have made me love movies again uh, at the end of this festival. <laughs> and that is Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. And uh, I thought maybe, Adam, you could lead us into it because I think you saw it, uh, you know, the, you were the first in this group to see it. Yeah, I, I saw it. I wrote about it already for Ringer. It's an interesting movie to try and do a long first look at because it's really dense and rich and layered and, you know, will probably end up being... Uh, a movie for the discourse, right? You know, I think that um, the question of whether Spielberg is kind of taking... I think I'm going to ban the word discourse from this, the discourse from this podcast. I mean, I think that the question that I was sort of, you know, wrestling with while writing about it and thinking about it is, you know, is this just a victory lap around an amazing career? And a couple of critics have pointed out, and I tried to say the same thing, that the divorce of Spielberg's parents, this is not a revelation. This is like part of the, the syntax of American movie making. Because if you look at Close Encounters of the Third Kind or E.T., those are movies that are essentially about families that are fragmenting. It's just then something fantastic intrudes upon it. This mm. is all, And Spielberg has even said something like this, I think, at one of the press conferences, which is this movie is like what would happen if that didn't happen. And you just had to stay with the family and you just had to stay with realism, right? But of course, it's not realism. It's mythicism and lyricism and memory. Maybe you also just say what the movie's about. Sure, it's, bit, it's about his childhood. And it's a fictionalized, mythified version of his childhood. The opening line is the young Spielberg is seeing a movie and someone says, mommy and daddy will always be will be right, right there with you. And, you know, 60 years later, they still are. That's the dialectic of his work. You have these two parents explaining to the young Sammy what a movie is. And his dad says it's a mechanical process. And his mom says it's like a dream. There's a truth in between those two things about what movies are, and there's a truth in there about Spielberg. You know, are mm. his films technical exercises or are they personal? I thought that the emotional compression in the first 10 minutes I thought was going to bring me to tears because I'm like, wow, Steven Spielberg was seven once and he wanted to make a movie. As it goes along, it becomes more of a tearjerker, and I was a bit more ambivalent about it. Mm. But, you know... This is all his powers and all his attention and all his desire has gone into and making craft. this film and craft. Yeah. And, you know, at times it's really quite overwhelming. And it has really fantastic little walk-on performances of different sizes, some of which have been spoiled, some of which haven't, that are going to be very memorable. Uh, you know, Jud Judd Hirsch barrels into this movie and grabs it by the throat for about 10 minutes and then just leaves because I think any more of him as the Sammy's uncle would be too much. But it's a very hammy performance in a very kosher movie and he's great. 
Yeah. Uh, I was, you know, I found out yesterday while recording the podcast that Fred Wiseman is in other people's children. Yes. And so I think the other, I, I don't know if we should spoil it, but this great cameo in, in the Fablemans, those are like the two... I like that in standout cameos of TIFF 2020. Yeah, that in other people's in other people's money, I like that Fred Wiseman is an honorary Parisian. It's it's there's no need to explain why he's a gynecologist in Paris speaking French. Yeah, and I like that he's called Doctor Wiseman. <laughs> I had a big smile when that happened. Yeah, when he wasn't some doctor, somebody else. Yeah, but I don't know the other cameo in the Fablemans. I don't know what what the, the rest of you who've seen it think. It's been spoiled so much. Like, is it worth? talking about because it's it's great yeah actually you know maybe you know listeners if if you haven't seen it and want to preserve it maybe just skip ahead yeah. like Vadim got in trouble first for that I don't, I don't think we talk about that on the <laughs> podcast I got yelled at on Twitter by by a person for um, posting a link they, 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 uh, so much of the movie is, is, is stuff about Steven Spielberg that I could yeah. have known already if I had like exhaustively read everything on the internet right. And so it begins with a story that he's told before, but it's a story that he's told in some kind of like EPK and sit down with like Ron Howard and Brian Grazer. Um, oh, sorry, that's the that's the end story. And like the beginning of how he discovered film okay. through The Greatest Show on Earth is a story he apparently told Mark Kermode on a broadcast sometime in the 2000s. So, you know, the movie actually... Um, is in some ways just like hiding in plain sight, mm. and then you start going down. You know, if you if you try if you try to fact check it, as it were, you 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 quick you hit some walls like very quickly. Um, I gather you tried. Of course I did. I was like, <laughs> mother tornado. You know, I was just like trying to figure out what's going on. But God, Vadim, this reveals so much about your my desire, uh, my dieter for the, for the literal minded and the quantifiable is uh, equal to Steven Spielberg's own. I think it's well, he, so that's he includes fine. a lot about the man who shot Liberty Valance, and so the key line is "print the legend." Right? Spielberg believes that about Ford, and he's believing that about himself. Well, yeah. So, so we should just say the cameo we've been dancing around is David Lynch as John Ford at, at the very end of this movie, and it is. For me, it was a complete surprise, even the scene with Ford, the fact that Lynch was playing it. So I do hope that people, I don't know if it'll be possible by the time it comes out, but I hope people do encounter it as such because it was just completely wonderful. And, you know, I will say that this, the thing that this movie really captures for me without being cringy or cloying is this boy's love for, for the movies, which starts at an early age, like, Adam was saying uh, when he watches a movie and and sees a train crash into a car which movie is that it's the greatest show on earth the greatest show on earth and you know he decides to recreate that with a toy train set and then he wants to do it again and again and his mom says why don't we make a film and then you don't have to keep doing it again and again you can just play it again and again which you know it's such a not only was it a very you know, beautiful idea sort of philosophically. It reveals a lot about the mother. It says a lot about the, you know, rise on debt of Spielberg's cinephilia. I just thought that was a wonderful kind of origin story scene about why someone like him, a, a master of spectacle, would start making movies. And then the film sustains that throughout his life up to when he becomes a young adult. And it introduces all these various resonances and significances for why he continues to be in love with movies and why that gives him purpose, you know? Then it has to do uh, with his family, his adolescence, the way he basically interacts with the world. And I just found that, um, that the movie managed to keep this, you know, keep his cinephilia alive like this pure flame while also interweaving that love of movies with so many aspects of his life and the you know changing world around him and then for it to build up with all of that to for it to end with him meeting his favorite director who made him uh want to make movies it's just you know Vadim I think before I went to see the movie yesterday I asked you like this is a capital M movie right and it is it is a capital M movie in the sense that it is you know, it's all about the wonder and the magic um, of what cinema is. And, and, and it really, even though it's so different from something like Close Encounters or Jaws or all these Spielberg movies that are really close to me, it made me awe and made me gasp at the screen as if I was watching, like, I don't know, the UFO in Close Encounters or the shark 
in Jaws, you know. It made cinema, the spectacle of cinema feel like that, like some beautiful, otherworldly thing. I mean, how convenient is it for Steven Spielberg and for all of us that the first movie he saw was called The Greatest Show on Earth? <laughs> that it involves a train, that it can help us all invoke like the Orson Welles train set quote about the magic cinema. You know, like these, are, these, these, are, all, these yeah. are all very handy things to have happened. I have no reason to disbelieve that it went any other way. And, you know, contrary I mean, if it, to... If it didn't, how does that matter? That well, to, it makes him an even right, better story To, to the point that, you know, like, in the, the, the fact-checking thing is, is both tempting and kind of a false lead because everything in the movie has that kind of like, well, if it didn't happen this way, it should have happened that way or it felt like it happened that way. And I'm 78 now, so, you know, like, well, this is that, that's just how it is. Well, that's what I mean by print the legend, right? That's like the, that's the guiding metaphor of the movie. Right. And what's interesting, too, about legends is that as a kid, the movies he makes stand in for all the post-war experiences he's never going to have to have. He makes cowboy movies because that's the past. He makes war movies because he didn't go into World War II and he's going to be too young for Vietnam. He's honoring his father's experience by doing that. He's inhabiting these genres that he grew up with. And then when he makes something personal, which isn't a genre, but it is a familiar kind of movie making, which is the home movie... Uh, the home movie has more truth in it than he realizes. And it's like Spielberg doing a De Palma for five minutes. And, you know, Spielberg is someone who, when you read interviews with him, he often talks around how smart he really is. You know, it's good for him to talk around how smart he really is, because then sometimes he might seem less accessible. But there's stuff in that home movie section where it's like you're watching... Um, you're, you're watching Greetings, or you're watching home movies, or you're watching Blowout, and the idea of how dangerous it is to document your own life and to document your own family because the camera doesn't lie. Spielberg is as interesting a director of voyeurism as lots of other filmmakers who seem edgier or who seem more dangerous. And despite certain reservations I have about the movie, I won't say which one, but it's Michelle Williams's performance. I don't think it's as good as people are saying it is. Really? Uh, I, I, I was very sold by that performance, even though her accent was sort of all over the place. She gave, she gave my favorite performance of the year in another movie that's not here. Showing uh, up. Showing up. I love Michelle Williams. In this, I think, uh, again, I talked about Kosher and Hammy. I think she's a bit much. But I, but I think despite my reservations, what you're saying about being overwhelmed by the skill of it, I am moved by the display of talent because we do not have so many great living directors of any age that we can afford to write Spielberg off anymore. And the thing about the Lynch cameo that I've been thinking about all week is that in the 80s, Lynch is the sort of director who people would have used as a club against Spielberg to say Steven Spielberg is wrecking movies, so it's good that we have Blue Velvet. And what I love is how much that comparison ends up flattering all of them. It flatters Ford that he's great enough that only Lynch can play him. Yeah. It flatters Spielberg because he has Lynch on speed dial. Yeah. You know, and I don't know. Maybe it's the passing of another amazing filmmaker this week, who, by the way, was not a Spielberg fan, mm -hmm. uh, Jean-Luc Godard. But uh, we do not have so many great living directors that we could afford to just say about Spielberg, like, oh, you know, he lived happily ever after. So what? I think the movies that it's the densest thing I've seen here. No, I think it's an amazing feat of craft as well. And I, you know, the hamminess, it, it's immediately apparent that the movie is operating at a register above, you know, realism. And initially that kind of took me aback, but I think it's such a complete, um, you know, it's not like just the performances are like that. The entire tone of the movie is so intentional and consistent. And it is fantasy-like, you know, even even though it is, it also has like um, very emotionally real moments that I really bought into it. It's, it seemed to me like this embrace of, again, you know, cinema, you know, cinema as something that is unreal, that is overblown, a little bit exaggerated. So I didn't mind that the performances were a little hammy. And I have to say... I was very moved by Michelle Williams's performance and also the character, which is, you know, on yesterday's podcast, we were talking about a bunch of movies here, which are about like difficult women, you know, especially older women who are in unhappy marriages or, or other kinds of domestic or familial situations. And I thought that this, even though Michelle Williams's character, you know, emerges as at moments almost like a villain or or sort of the the problem character in the family. The movie deals with her with so much, not just empathy, but also admiration for the kind of very intelligent and 
uh, talented and full of life woman she is, who is really just like struggling with something that happens to a lot of people. You know, you fall in and out of love and then you have to live with that and live with the effects that that has on your family. And also in this case that she's married to someone who is a kind of genius nerd. I just thought that it was, it. you know, it, that is actually a, a an exchange in the movie about what it feels like to be married to a genius. Um, I, I don't know. I thought that character was so utterly she ta- moving. She, she talks about him like the Manchurian candidate. She's like, Bert is the kindest, bravest, sweetest, warmest human being I've ever <laughs> met, met in my I, life. I have, to, I have to point out the movie is dedicated to his dad. It's not dedicated to both of his parents. It's dedicated yeah. to Arnold. And you could say that's because Arnold was the one who died more recently. Mm. Um, I noticed this. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, the, the kind of big the big reveal of the movie, if, if there's like a, you know, a kind of like aha moment, it's that like, it's not all about the father. It's also about the mother, you know, like that's the kind of twist. And it's like, like Roy Neary is closer to his mom than he is his dad. You know, there's this kind of, and, and, you know, it's, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I keep, I keep, I keep reminding people that this is a movie that he's been talking about theoretically since 1999, but which he didn't start writing until COVID began and which he didn't announce going into production until both parents were safely dead. And he gave it six months after that too. Um, (laughs) so, (laughs) you know, like, and, and, uh, and that's, uh, I wouldn't say that's a, a hard to understand why that might be, or, or something, to, something that would be hard to empathize with. Is always. I will tricky. say, I, I believe Jeannie Berlin eating brisket more than Michelle Williams cooking it. Yeah, that that's 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 my I, cute, I have my to point cute out, line there. Paul Paul Dano's Russian is bad, like for the two lines of Russian <laughs> that he has. See, this is why I have uh, you both on the podcast. But Judd Hirsch eating a chicken should get an Academy Award. That's cinema. That's what it's we call cinema. cinema. Judd Hirsch yeah. tearing a chicken and apart I, is amazing. I should just say that the movie is very funny. I mean, it yeah. has amazing gags and uh, just, it, it's funny on a line level. It's funny on, you know, visually. It's a very complete, like a total experience that, that is well, quite And moving. it even has the one genre Spielberg's never made, which is for, the, for about 20 minutes, it's a high school comedy, yes. right? It's like a, a high school comedy complete with a Carrie sort of prom where he gets revenge like Carrie did, but instead of telekinesis and blood, he makes like a, a fake Lenny Riefenstahl movie about the anti-Semites, which is a really amazing bit, which I also don't know the truth of. But you talked about wait until parents are safely dead. What I love, and we're so deep into spoiler territory here, yeah. I mean, who cares? I love that 60 years later, it wasn't just enough for him to to tell the story of the bully who he used cinema to cut down to size. He includes the exchange with always like, promise you won't tell anyone. And the young Spielberg's like, I won't, unless I make a movie about it. But I won't, I won't. Yeah. But I won't, I won't. And you're watching it and you're like, Steven, you petty bitch. <laughs> and it's Wait, re- you pet- I, I was like, yeah, Steven. Yeah. You know. It's, it, I mean, that, that you moment. You go, girl. That, I wasn't like, you petty bitch. You yeah. should make that movie. That moment was <laughs> exhilaratingly funny. Yeah. I also, I, the one, my other, like, straight thing is, that, you know, why, why is the movie called, why, why, why are they named the Fablements? And there's a couple of answers. One is the, you know, the super obvious one, Fableman. You know, we understand. <laughs> the other is that it seems to have been a good way for him to invent a new anti-Semitic slur to brood upon. Yeah. Oh, because yeah. without Fagelman, there is no Bagelman. You can't do that. It's just like, that is the weirdest reason. I also was wondering, is it like a Spielberg fableman? Is there some kind of analogy there? Like, I don't know. Spielberg, I mean, I just... There's some rhyme there that I can't put my finger on. I thought of the constant... uh, Like Reelberg. I I I thought of Fagel over and over in uh, Serious Man. Another movie that Spielberg (gasps) seems to quote in this by having the tornado. Except oh, yeah. that in Serious Man, the tornado is the punctuation mark. And here it's almost like a, a beginning, right? Yeah. This is one of two movies I saw this week where a sort of unhinged mother figure drives towards a storm but the other or a danger. But the other one's not playing at TIFF, so I can't say what it okay. is. Okay. Oh. Uh, I just figured it out. Spielberg. Yeah. Fableman. Oh, Spiel and Fable. Spiel. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Your, your Yiddish is great. Oh, thank you. It's good. <laughs> All right. We'll be talking about this movie more, I'm sure, uh, in the months to come. But we should move on to another movie that has generated a lot of buzz here. I don't know if it's like restoring people's faith in cinema, but Beatrice and Vadim, I'm curious. Sorry, Beatrice and Adam. I know you saw, or maybe Vadim also saw Glass Onion. We all saw Glass oh, Onion. Oh, you also saw Glass Onion. So tell, tell me about Glass Onion, Beatrice. Okay, um, so Glass Onion is like the second entry in this Ryan Johnson, Knives Out, Benoit Blanc, murder mystery, um, you know, 
hurtling into the 2020s, sort of, you know, but like very much drawing from like an established tradition um, of, you know, I don't know, Agatha Christie-esque murder mysteries. Um, this one is uh, much more pointedly in conversation with just like modern rich people, just like, you know, influencers and, you know, finance capital folks. And so then the first one was more like regular rich people. I, I don't feel know. like there was like, I mean, it was like, a, no, it was like a rich, like family. Yeah. Just like, you know, yeah. but it, I'm like, I'm not sure if it was like it explicitly set in the contemporary, but yeah. it kind of just had like a vintagey feel. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, felt like more of a throwback, but I yeah. guess now it's safe to assume that Benoit Blanc is, you know, beyond time. Um, <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, it's, it's set on an island. Um, Benoit is following this group of rich friends as, you know, the head of, of them, played by Edward Norton. You know, uh, an actor that is just amazing at playing the asshole. And then here, um, I, I mean, I think he's, he's hilarious. And anyway, this, this Edward Norton character summons all of his friends to like restage this murder mystery. But, you know, as Benoit Blanc investigates, he realizes that they're all just trying to kill each other because, um, you know, there's, well, I, I also don't want to reveal spoilers about this because it actually. <laughs> it's a whodunit. Um, it's right? a whodunit. Yeah. Um, even though like halfway through the film, like you go through, you know, digging into these various character personalities um, and their connection to each other. But like halfway through, it becomes like a retread of everything we've seen that like kind of puts everything into a new perspective. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I just found it to be like basically incredibly fun to look at how much money is on screen to an extent. Um, but also like in a very, you know, on intellectual sense, you know, it was just like basically delightful to see, you know, these actors, you know, just completely embody their ridiculous archetypes and, you know, see this movie sort of get deconstructed as the mystery unfolds. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I basically thought it was fun. I know that Adam had some like some particularly some some reservations about what the message, the ultimate message of the film. I, I, I wish people could see Adam's face right now. <laughs> I had a very good time having a bad time at this movie. Ah, okay. There's a certain liberation that you feel when you're in a room of like 900 people laughing and the four people you've chosen to surround yourself with are just no-selling a movie's jokes, which is probably not the movie's fault because if you compare this to a movie like The Menu, which is awful, you see something like Rian Johnson, the way he stages jokes and shoots an island and rooms and shoots wealth and the way the actors like this is exponentially better it's assured and confident and skilled to which i want to say it should be because he has a gigantic production deal with netflix and this is what we expect of like good tier genre filmmakers mm. what i and actually the other thing we expect of these filmmakers including and especially him is that this will be an expensive well modulated movie about you know kind of obnoxious things like smashing the system and taking rich people mm. down and pushing again, you know, disrupting, right? Mm. Like, what does it mean to be a disruptor? I don't think that Knives Out is a movie, uh, Glass Onion is not a movie I want to tell me about disruption, mm. but it keeps doing so. There's a lot of lines that seem calibrated for viewers to clap at, whether alone at home on Netflix or in theaters. And at the screening I was at, they did clap, and I thought people should get out more. And I thought that by the end, um, I had had a good time in quotes, because it wasn't fun for... For me, and I'm an easy laugher and an easy mark, especially for genre stuff that's mm. that's got some guts to it. There's something about it that's very bloodless and anodyne and pleasant. And so, like something I'd say about it, neither as a compliment or a, a put down, but I think it's very true. It does feel like 2022, the movie. I will give him credit for that. 
So maybe that doesn't really sound like a compliment. God, I'll, that does not sound like a compliment. I, ha- <laughs> I have to say that, like, I also wasn't, like, laughing. Yeah. I was just basically, like, amused at all of the intricacies and how it fit together. Um, and also, to your point about, I also am usually annoyed when things are, like, very, you know, situated in, like, contemporary moralizing. However, to me, it's like um, murder mysteries are always kind of beholden to a certain like I don't know simplistic framework with like a moral outcome so like to me that was just in the tradition of that with you know the contemporary inflection yeah I mean um I I'm curious how it compares to the first one I don't know if that's a fair question to ask but I actually enjoyed the first one a lot I saw it at TIFF and I remember just walking in because I had nothing else to see and they had tickets left and no one really I mean no one knew about what you know knives out was about and being quite pleasantly surprised that it was this big budget uh you know starry movie that you know felt like uh like you were saying like a real like kind of retro who done it but with sort of this contemporary slickness and and style uh the, the but, slickness is why the first one is just slid away from me under oath, I could not tell you anything that happens in the first Knives Out. Same here, like honestly. Like under oath, <laughs> with a gun to my head. If someone was like, who was in that? I'm like, Christopher Plummer, because he looked like he did in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I can tell you what cigarettes people smoked in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, because that's a real movie. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. I remember the sweaters in the first one. That yeah, was like I was going to say, but sure. I think I remember the sweaters mostly because people talked about it so much and not because of the movie. <laughs> like people memefied and, you know, kind of made made a, a, an internet thing out of it. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I need to hear what Vadim thinks because all I saw was the number of stars you gave it on Letterboxd. I gave it three stars. And yeah. so it's the three star film festival. But I had a good time. Uh, so my, my memory, and I had to look at my review of Knives Out to jog my memory a little <laughs> bit, um, is that this is like a, an improvement in many ways. Um, in that Because the first one just does not look good. It looks like very flat and smeary mm. and like blown out. And this is like some of that money has gone towards letting DP Steve Yedlin do his like fake 35 millimeter grain algorithm overlay, which is like very good. It's very convincing. Um, it is, and the other part of it has gone to like be a tribute to specifically, he keeps bringing up The Last of Sheila, which I haven't seen, but I did just see Evil Under the Sun because he programmed at the Paris. Same first act structure, same third act structure, down to like how is the villain going to be punished? It seems like they might get away. And that big plush, you know, room. Um, you know, it's, so we had a, in, this, this seems circuitous, but it'll, I'll make it quick. Uh, we had an interview with this, uh, the DP of um, Prey on, this, on our site a few weeks ago, and he pointed out that something that Spielberg's very good at is um, reframing uh, within the frame, often with rack focuses and mm-hmm. redirecting, just doing, just doing the work of coverage within the frame. Yeah. And ironically, he doesn't actually necessarily do a ton of that in the Fablemans. You know, there's a lot more two-shot, reverse-shot and, and you're watching Glass Onion is like Ryan Johnson's doing a lot of it. Like he's and clearly that's like a deliberate kind a of a couple of times points. really well actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like so like you know just like it's it's just like a sharper piece of work than the first one in some ways. The topicality of it all, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, you got you kind of hit the brick wall of the paradox of like the very expensive movie that internalizes the dialogue. You know, like there's this little speech about like you know they don't they don't want you to change the system. It's like well, it's a Netflix movie, so what are we doing here? Well, we can we can show our money, we can show the money that we've been given, we can use it to license Beatles songs, we can use it to license multiple Bowie songs, um, we can build this very big set. Um, but you can't, you can't think your way out of that to actually like breaking the system. But you know, what's a man supposed to do? There's an interview with him from like around looper time. I remember when he said like, you know, people like me, there's not a big budgetary space for us to work at. You always end up making sequels and the best you can do is come up with your own franchise, I guess. But you mentioned evil under the sun, James Mason and and Diana Rigg. That's a movie that about how rich people are all those things, venal, self-interested, probably not friends to you or me. The difference is that in that movie, no one at any point does the equivalent of looking at you and the audience going, right? It's self-evident. And I think that the thing that this franchise has a little bit of a problem with is Like a smugness, maybe? It's a little bit of the 
right? And that's what I think feels like it's very much of the moment. I guess it just depends on how much you want to let it register, you know, like because the mechanics of it are so busy, because there is so much stuff going on. I just it's, it's almost like somebody's talking at the back of a theater sporadically, you know, like it does. It's not protruding to the foreground for me because there's so many mechanics to get through. Mm. You know, like the thing is long. It's almost 140 minutes. There's just so much stuff to do. May I um, segue to another movie that does a lot of right yeah. Women talking. Uh, right? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> the real event that Miriam Tay's based the story on is took place in Bolivia. That was Argentina? I think it's, no, Bo- it's Bolivia. It's Bolivia, Bolivia in a Mennonite community. Mennonite community in Bolivia. Bolivia. Okay. And without putting too fine a point on it. And time period? Contemporary-ish. Okay. I thought it was supposed to be, yeah, 20th century yeah. or something. Okay. So without putting too fine a point on it, Jesse Buckley and Claire Foy are not Bolivian, right? So there's a... there's a pl- so Oh, I was going to say, there are actually, like, white yeah. communities. So, like, it's not necessarily unorthodox. No, but there's a placelessness that the novel plays with that the movie is also sort of playing with because it's coy about it. It doesn't come out and exactly say where, but it does say when in a device that's different than the book. There's a moment that it's very Shyamalan-y, right? Where you find out that they're taking the census and it's a particular yeah. year that seems at odds with the language and the manner and the dress and, and the behavior of the, the characters a we car. see. Yeah. yeah, it's like a moment of invasion. It's like the end of the village, but 20 minutes I into really, the movie. I really, I have not heard anybody compare this movie yet to the village, but that's that's good. Well, but it's a good, but it's a good moment because one thing about Sarah Pauly that I admire is she's really good with pop song cues. Mm. There's a use of video killed the radio star in Take This Waltz that I think is one of the best pop cues in any movie from that period. It's devastating. And so the song in this movie is Daydream Believer and it's used really well, too. And yeah. I kind of sat up at that point in the movie because I thought, and the audience I saw it with kind of gasped. And I thought, that's a great little coup. That's a great moment. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So that that actually gives a lot of context, uh, useful context. My annoyance with the movie began with the very first frame, which says this: what you're going to see is an act of female imagination. Yes. Which, you know, immediately is this sort of, a very vague, broad kind of language that characterizes the whole movie. So basically, the women in this community, they've been drugged and raped, you know, by the by the men of the colony uh, for a little while and told that it's an act of this of Satan, of the devil. And then they figure out it, it's actually the men they live, uh, they, you know, live with, are married to, are, are mothers of, blah, blah, blah. It's obviously very, very devastating. And... Um, they, the attackers are, I guess, sent to jail. And, well, yeah. They're sent to jail and other men from the community are leaving to sort of post bail. So yeah. it's like an unseen kind of solidarity. They're leaving. Yeah. And the women are left behind in the men's point of view to just wait. Yeah. And they choose to this moment to kind of mobilize and organize a vote. Yeah. About which is very simple. You know, do you stay and push back and fight or are they going to go? Yeah, and the third option is forgive. Right. Forgive and just stay. Which does, not and get, which does not get a ton of votes. Right, yeah. And so they have this two-day period to do this, and they organize this sort of forum or quorum or something. You know, they have a vote, and then the women gather in a barn or, or something like a barn, and um, they discuss, and Ben Wishaw is like the one good man, and there's a moment in the movie where someone says, not all men, and you see, you know, the camera goes over to Ben Wishaw. Uh, his mother... Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> his He's like the school teacher, and his mother was, you know, you know, suffered the same sort of fate as a lot of these women, and spoke out against it, so he was ostracized, and he's come back to teach the children, so he's like the good guy who sits and takes notes, and is the punching bag for a lot of, um, sort of you know, wannabe mic drop moments in the film about, you know, men, like, uh, men giving up their space or their tendency to claim space or, or being told, like, you know, your opinion doesn't matter here. You're He's worthless. the human equivalent of a choked sob in this movie. <laughs> and he has a moment where he says, what I was going to say wasn't important. Yes, which is so, you know, designed for that sort yeah. of, you know, the the right that you were talking mm-hmm. about with Glass Onion. It's very much like 
designed to be a moment that people can then write some kind of think piece about about how it's like it feels like the kind of movie I'll be shown in like a DEI like training exercise eventually like Truly. when you describe it this way Truly. it's like it models discourses for us to follow in the office that's kind of it's, what it's it sounds truly, like I mean there's also one moment where um, he he says when he says what I was gonna say doesn't matter and uh, the character played by Rooney Mara is like now imagine if your entire life what you said do- didn't matter no one cared it's just so on the nose the, the women have these discussions that really play out like what you're saying like some kind of DEI transcript, it's incredibly simplified and obvious and basically, you know, picking up on all the talking points around to try sexual assault and, and like feminism. So to be try to be fairer to Sarah Polly than I'm being to Rian Johnson or than I'm gonna to be to someone else in a minute. This is Canadian to, loyalty at work. Canadian, here. No, no, to try to try and be fair, it's a rhetorical movie. I mean, that's what it is. And I like that in a Toronto filmmaker's movie, she's cast uh, one of the, the presiding lights of the Toronto New Wave. The star of uh, uh, Patricia Rosebus, I've heard the mermaid singing, kind of gets to be the biggest actor in the cast. You know, Sheila McCarthy is presiding over two girl with dragon tattoos because it's Rooney Mara and Claire Foy, as well as Jesse Buckley. You know, she gives the Toronto veteran the last word. She's the elder. The problem with a movie like this or the challenge is, do the characters speak in different voices or are they all just things that one author is trying to say through them? Do you have characters or do you have mouthpieces? Do you have conversations or do you have talking points? I've spoken to some people who seem to think it transcends that thing. And we should say this is a somewhat minority view on the movie, which I think is going to be nominated for multiple Academy Awards and be, to use your outlawed word, (laughs) <laughs> a discourse monster because okay. it pairs with the books. I need a nickel. I'll That's give you a that. nickel. <laughs> a Canadian nickel I'll give you. Because it because it pairs with the book that Sarah wrote earlier this year, her book of essays, which is, you know, largely autobiographical, Run Toward the Danger, which is which I've read and which is one of the better pieces of writing about that moment and mm-hmm. about connection to the industry. I don't mean that the book and the movie are a package deal and you can't judge one without the other. But again, I'm trying to be fair to a movie that didn't work for me. They are of a piece. But I also think what's irritating about this movie and the D-I-S-C-O-U-R-S-E around it is it's also somewhat bulletproof. Because if you say that the movie doesn't work, there's an implication that you are somehow rejecting the conclusions its characters come to. I don't think that's true. No, you don't think that's true, but other people are going to say that this is true. No, I think that's actually maybe not even giving people enough credit. I think this movie is, is... I, I completely agree with you that people are lapping it up, are going to lap it up. You know, it is designed to be that way. It's designed to have all these monologues and dialogues delivered by strong, like, excellent actresses. Yep. There were moments in my screening where people clapped after certain monologues. I mean, it was very frustrating. The movie is really setting itself up for that. But, you know, it is... To me, it's also such a surface-level movie. You know, it, none of these women actually emerge as characters. Even if they they express distinct points of view, it's also carefully designed to be, like, the multiple sides of an argument, and an argument or a discussion that's been going on in culture for a while. But I wish some of them felt like flesh-and-blood women. I never got a sense of what actually any of them went through or want, because they are all just... You know, it's like they're going through the motions of this argument, trying to hit all the different important points. And none of them, even even the Jesse Buckley character, who's presented as the difficult one, right? Yeah. She's the one who says, why don't we just stay, you know, no need to be aggressive. And Claire Foy's character is the aggressive one. She's like, I'm going to kill all the men. I mean, these are both extreme points of view within this community. Can I get some insight into why these women hold these points of view? You know, who they are, like what sort of complexities led them to this point beyond the one thing, the one horrible, decidedly horrible thing they experienced. But it just, it flattens them to that injury. It flattens them to the thing that happened to them. I want to know more about how the thing that happened to them interacts with them as people and women in this community. A- anything that I would have to add to that is not important. So I'm not going to say anything <laughs> else. And how would you feel, Adam, if nothing you had to say was important your I, entire life? I will just say that for me, the next false note Jesse Buckley has in a movie will be the first one ever. 
Mm. I think that she's a flawlessly good actor. Uh, she's got a lot of good actors. I'm also glad that I Frances, love Claire Foy. And I'm, I'm, I'm also glad that Frances McDormand's part is about this big. Oh God! Thank goodness. Jesus. Small part. Yeah. Anyway. And also, can I just say I can already predict the think piece being written about how this film has no men, like except Ben Wishaw. Like it doesn't show. Who needs more than him? True, but you know, it it makes this like I think it makes kind of a point of this movie only giving screen time to the women, not to the men who have raped them or attacked them, uh, which turns it into a kind of chamber drama. But everything feels so constructed and schematic that it just does not feel, you know, like a story about real women having experienced a, a, a real kind of, you know, grave trauma and then making real decisions about something truly radical. All these things need to feel like they can actually happen, you know, for them to have the the kind of force that I think the movie wants to leave you with, the force, like the utopic force. Like even if it's an act of imagination, it's something utopic, it needs to feel grounded in the possible. I don't know. I was, I mean, I, I haven't seen the film, but I, I mean, as someone that has written a lot about just like American pop, cultural feminism it definitely seems like of a piece with a sort of in my mind sort of algorithm manufactured feminism of something like I don't know promising young woman and um well an upcoming film that seems to be like made specifically to anger me uh, you know that me too movie that's coming out she said she said which is strange that women talking she said um which seems to be like the line, the dialogue is fed from some sort of like, you know, I don't know machine that like understands like feminist discourse online yeah. and like what people want to hear. However, it is kind of strange that this movie, that you guys are describing this movie as this chamber drama, this sort of like learning play, because like it's obviously not like it's seems like it's going to be like an Oscar movie, but like just hearing the description, you can also like imagine this like alternate universe where it's like, I don't know, some sort of like Radu Jude talkie where like the main drama is just like people talking and like that being like super compelling. And like, you know, you don't necessarily have to have like deep character characterization for a sort of drama to unfold from from conversation. But like, this is obviously not that. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, it's like, I also haven't seen a movie. I was thinking if you want to get, have a movie of feminist discourse that actually gets people like agitated, I was thinking back to eight years ago when Gone Girl came out. Oh. First the book, then the movie. And the question was always like, but is she justified? And that's what gets people going like real fast. Okay, yeah. so you're, you're very pedantic. Did they mispronounce? <laughs> Hold on. Did they mispronounce? <laughs> no, no, in a Please good way. Please do not in a good way. <laughs> Did they mispronounce Gillian Flynn's name in Glass Onion? I have no idea. But in Glass Onion, he says, we got Gillian Flynn to write it. And I, I, thought, know. I don't know it? if it's a hard G or not. But then I'm like, his character mispronounces things all the time. Uh, so then I thought that's a really good joke. I don't know. I, this is the sort of thing I thought you would catch. No. That's like, that's I, I'm yeah. The thing is, I'm terrible with pronunciation of names, that's titles, a you, That's everything. a you thing. What I thought about was, why is Edward Norton's character, his last name, the same as the production company, Braun? Like, I feel like there's something going on there, but... Yeah. That's, a, that's another time. All right. We're segueing now. Kind of a very cool movie about, you know, women doing something different women not just talking but women yeah, doing action yes. women doing like real action and taking taking charge of a fairly male dominated world is dry ground burning the brazilian film uh by Adoli Quiros and joanna pimenta pimenta yeah pimenta. you were I'm, just you yeah. were just saying you're bad with pronunciations and you nailed that because eh. uh, he loves them ah okay <laughs> Um, but it, why, Vadim, why don't you tell us about this movie? Sure, uh, Adderley Quiros, and so I, first of all, I just, there's a there's a co-director credit here with Joanna Pimenta, who I, who I, I think has been his DP since he started making stuff, and and I, my my feeling is that like maybe this is a just a, a an acknowledgement of how closely they work rather than like becoming a brand new like working relationship. Uh, so Adelaide Kiros has been, gosh, he's older than I realized. I just looked him up. He's 52. He's been working in this community for a while. This is his third feature proper. Um, and so, so this is an extension of, of things that he does regularly. 
unfortunately, when you ask me a big fan of the movie to say, please synopsize the movie, it's a little difficult. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. You know, like I, I would say that it's fair to say it's a community portrait revolving around two half sisters who um, have who get involved in various I- illegal activities that are less important for their illegality than their righteousness in a politically stacked act against the background of Bolsonaro probably being reelected again. Um, what what the movie is interested in doing is is some of the things that he does a lot. Um, they're uh, shooting things at night in ways that look kind of like Michael Mann, but a little bit more calmed down. Uh, being having an incredibly loud sound mix at all times. Uh, oft, and um, you know, and kind of, uh, and having these kinds of lo-fi sci-fi gestures. His previous feature, once there was Brasilia, explicitly was kind of a sci-fi film. It had this spaceship that was kind of traveling over Brasilia, um, and this has um, um, some some cops traveling around the city in a, in a cop film from the inside that looks like essentially the same thing. So, um, over two and a half hours, what the movie gives us is. Um, uh, it's, it's some scenes of these two half sisters just sitting and talking at great extended length while chain smoking massively about uh, their upbringing, their player father, um, and their aspirations. And this is also a piece with what he does his first feature, Wide Out Black In. There's a lot of there's this kind of oral testimony, oral history of the specific city that he's from that he's very committed to. Um, and then uh, there are sequences that are. Um, a lot of fun that look like uh, I, always, I always end up going back to Tron Legacy anytime somebody has like motorcycle helmets like like lights in the dark but there's a lot of just like flashy stuff with people on motorcycles there's like dry ground burning is, is a literal title there is ground it is burning there's a lot of oil and gasoline in this there's a lot of stuff that's like kind of sculptural and industrial and sci-fi at the same time you know, grounding these sisters in these oil facilities and like making really good use of these derricks like starting and stopping uh, this is a full-service filmmaker. This is a guy who makes, um, you know, like clearly somebody who's seen in Vonda's room, obviously, uh, but um, but who um, has a sense of the spectacular that's all his own um, and doesn't actually choose. It's like a false binary between like, let's respect the oral testimony of, of, of dispossessed peoples and like, let's make some really spectacular shit. Yeah. Like he manages to do and it. And it's docu-fiction, right? Did you already talk about that aspect? Like um, that? I, not much. I mean, I, I, I guess they all are kind of like he is acknowledged in the film at some yeah. point during one of the interviews as being there. Um, I think also the movie's kind of porous that way. Like, there's, Yeah, it is. You know, I, I couldn't place which section was fiction or, or non-fiction, but... There is, you know, one of the two sisters has just come out of prison. Right. Um, and so I think there are parts that are recreated possibly from before she went to prison. The chronology is a little unclear. Yes. And there are also, you know, like there are scenes of like shootouts and murders that are, you know, I would assume yeah. <laughs> you know, that no one would do that like willingly for a film. So I think they're recreated, but. And they're very, they're very stylized. They're very yeah. stylized. They, it's really like a genre film. And yeah, I mean, because this is their oil bandits, basically. It, I mean, it's these women. <laughs> this is going to sound kind of bad, but these women in like, you know, riding motorbikes, like slathered in grease. They look so fucking badass, you yes. know, operating this, <laughs> operating this, this uh, factory, you know, where they're drilling the oil. It's, it's really hot. <laughs> I agree. I mean, like, the Deem already gave quite an exhaustive account of yeah. what the film is about. But um, I mean, just like from a very termite-brained point of view, I was just like, like, yeah, women. Like, <laughs> they are so just like fucking cool. Yeah. And like, it was just so rousing because like, you know, one of them is like a player and a womanizer. But she's like kind of just like, she's super cool doing it. And the other one is like, the lead. It's a very queer movie too. It's a very without, queer without movie. Without a casually queer yeah, movie. Yeah, yes. without making yes. a point of it. Right. Yeah. Um, which I really appreciate in the scope of just like world cinema, but also just like a lot of recent Brazilian LGBTQ films. Because, you know, it's being queer, gay in Brazil is like a very, very difficult thing. This is, you know, yeah. one of the countries where there's like the highest rates of crime against queer people um so there's a lot of cinema that is in conversation with that aspect of brazilian society but you know this just kind of depicts it in um i don't know just not subtle but just like you know it's not seeing this as a problematic it's just their reality and you know they don't run into any sort of like conflict because of that because they're just so powerful and and sure of themselves and 
um, I, I guess this wasn't touched, but they're they're a gang essentially yeah. because they are um, in control of this oil facility and they have to man it as well. So they're like, you know, you see them like walking around with guns, like making sure that you know no one's stepping on their territory. Yeah. And you know, one of the other sisters is also like some sort of political leader of this group that is like a political group of like I guess just prisoner rights or just like working class yeah, rights. Yeah, she's she's like uh, she's contesting the election for mayor. Yes. And her party is called like the the prison, prison group. Yeah, the people's prison prisoners party. party. People, uh, pe- yeah, the prisoners party. And I thought. It was incredible because her uh, and she goes around campaigning and they're very Mm. like, I mean, not abolitionist outright, but they're very like pro prisoner rights, like you're saying claims. Um, Yeah. And those scenes are just incredible, too, because it's just like close up on like her just like shouting these like really, I mean, her like convictions, but like in very just like, you know, um, simple terms, but just like it's so rousing just like hearing like. I don't know, the the gravity with which she's like announcing these things. Like I just found it like super, super compelling and also in step with just like the, you know, vibrancy like of the film. I don't know. I, I thought it was was really wonderful and it's a quite long film, I think like a bit over two and a half hours, yeah. but for me it's kind of just like flew by. And it goes through various different registers, you know, there are like Vadim was sort of gesturing, there are observational sequences, interview sequences, and then really spectacular genre cinema s sequences. It just this also is it's arguably partially a musical, you know. <laughs> I true. Uh, no, no, I, I get that because there's a lot of them. there's a lot of music on the soundtrack, but also music is, is a form of communication, especially during yeah. the political sequences. Like the characters are externalizing through yeah. music, like what their, their political, political speeches are, are yeah. um, set to, like sort of the cadence of just like, you know, just music from yeah. the country and they're chanting chanting and then there's also an amazing kind of like club in a bus scene yes. oh yes <laughs> a group of women just sort of like dancing and rapping and singing in a bu- in a party bus basically yes. um yeah i i was just impressed by the breadth of modes that this film manages to explore which all feel consistent and and sort of like yeah, just blur into each other so you can't tell these different parts apart from each other. And it is, you know, it's a story of these two sisters, but it's a story of so much more, so many characters, so much more that's happening in Brazil. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm going to need a couple, you know, I'm, I'm going to need to watch it again, really, frankly, to grasp grasp all of it. its parts. It's very dense. Um, yeah, well... Uh, I'm trying to come up with a segue to this next movie and I can't think of any way to get to it. So, Adam, I'm just going to hand it over to you to talk about Darren Aronofsky's The Whale. Well, there are, there are not one but two people on this podcast I was trying to save a seat for at that screening. And we don't have to say who they are. <laughs> two people potentially trying to save a seat. Uh, you can say one of them was me because I said on yesterday's yeah. podcast that I couldn't get into yeah. The Whale and then I saw we, Empire of Light. We and both... Yeah. Yeah. Got my, shut out. And my, and my point of saying that is it's, it's the sort of movie people get shut out at film festivals not because it's going to be hard to see. In fact, it's going to be kind of mandatory to see. It's going to be like a gun to people's heads forcing them to watch this movie. But because you want to see it and have an opinion on it because I'm, I'm going to owe you another nickel. It's a discoursey movie. It's a fall movie. It's an, it's an award movie. Um, for me, it is the kind of movie I wish sometimes, and I, you don't do this because it interrupts other people's experience. It's the sort of movie where I wish you were allowed to just say fuck off to it, right? Um, uh, one does not need to project themselves into a movie to enjoy it any more than you can or can't enjoy a movie that has nothing to do with you. As uh, a father who is trying to take better care of himself as I'm getting older for not one but two female children, uh, the movie did nothing for me. I don't know how much closer one's experience can be. Well, you should say what the movie is about. I, I, I will. Yeah. It's about a person who has let himself go for reasons that are, of course, hinted at before being dramatically revealed exactly when you would expect them, about three quarters of the way through the script, because the script is a play and it's a bad play. Um, a guy who has let himself go. He has descended into overeating as emotional support because of a trauma. And he's let himself go to, like, really lethal proportions. He's, uh, he's 600 pounds, right? And yet this is supposed to be the first time he's ever Googled BMI or blood pressure or whatever, but be that as it may. Uh, he teaches online English courses with his camera off. Of course, the novel he has assigned is Moby Dick. 
because that's why the movie is called The Whale, and because Moby Dick is a metaphorical novel by a genius, and this is a play by someone who's not a genius, and so it, it interacts with Moby Dick in very symbolic ways. And the problem is that the whole movie rests on Brendan Fraser, who is both very good in the movie and seemingly very good in life. He seems like a very good person and an actor who didn't get enough credit for being a good actor when he was a star and who's been through things that are very public, which he's clearly drawing on for this performance. And a lot of what he does, fighting, I think, the makeup and fighting the staginess and fighting the fact that it's like a sitcom where everyone except him is Kramer. They just keep coming in and out. His daughter comes in and out. His nurse comes in and out. This Mormon missionary comes in and out. Right? That's the only thing that happens because he's a shut-in. He's housebound. Uh, Frazier fights that with his performance for everything he can, but this is directed by Darren Aronofsky, and Darren Aronofsky needs excessiveness and extremity and a kind of cruelty that masquerades as empathy. It's funny because it's the photo negative of the only movie of his that I respect, which is The Wrestler, which is also hugely yoked to a performance and is about an estranged father-daughter, and in The Wrestler, for me... There was deep catharsis at the end. And in this, the only reason I choked up is because I was so relieved that it was over. I just had an absolutely miserable time. And I think it's a film that is not even all that accomplished, but that mileage may vary. I don't like the way it looks. I don't like the way it's directed. I don't like the performances other than Brendan Fraser. Some very smart people whose job it will be to write about movies and vote for movie awards uh, will feel differently. But, you know, I hated it. And to give another photo negative for a movie here that you may have covered, so I won't go on, but I don't know if you guys talked about After Sun on the podcast. At Cannes, we, we've At talked Cannes. about it, yeah. Everything in that movie about parents and children and about that idea that somehow you may have done things wrong and how you deal with that with a kid. And this is where I'm now hugely imposing myself on it. The Whale uh, made me hate it because I recognized nothing true in it. And After Sun was almost hard for me to finish. And even now, hard for me to talk about. I like it so much because of how truthfully I think Charlotte Wells played with that. It's nice when you have movies that can kind of speak to each other at a festival and clarify what your values as a movie watcher are. So my values as a movie watcher have zero to do with The Whale and a lot to do with After Sun, which is a beautiful movie. And I hope it doesn't get a backlash against it because it's one of those movies that may get a backlash for actually being too good and people enjoy it. So that's Wait, a problem. Adam, you're constantly anticipating the discourse discourse so hard you owe me a nickel <laughs> i do owe you a nickel you said it. you're 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 like i like this movie so much i'm scared there will be a backlash <laughs> well but because it's distributed by a24 so therefore it's bad but it's a g really good movie no, it's we we talked about it out of can and it's a movie i think a lot of people love including myself and well and while brendan fraser will surely get an oscar nomination for whatever that's worth there's no chance that'll happen for paul mescal but paul mescal is the male performance of the year for me mm. bold claim yeah but you know i think it's a very good performance he's great too. uh well thank you for taking one for the team going to see the whale and then talking about it you know none of none of us managed to. I'm, I'm glad now that yeah, we didn't get it I know, I know. but uh we're, we're out of time but i wanted to just uh vadim beatrice if you had any you know little uh, i've been calling them tiff picks any little picks you want to shout out i'll, or I'll defer my pick actually i I, I don't have anything. <laughs> so. the, the Paolo Sorrentino commercial for Bulgari Roma with Anne Hathaway. Oh, and we Zendaya. can talk about that for a whole that's, other podcast. That's 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 really you know, folks. There's a director's cut. It's on YouTube. It's easy. Just Google Paolo Sorrentino Zendaya. Um, it's um it's got an image of a peacock strutting while Zendaya is vamping in the background. It's kind of everything I hate about Paolo Sorrentino in like a, a handy two and a half minute package. Here they've been showing the abbreviated non-director's cut uh, before every public screening. I've come to anticipate it. I got into a conversation with someone who argued for it as the uh, the TIFF kind of camp equivalent of the um, Nicole Kidman AMC commercial, something that you at first are just like, what is this? And then you internalize it and you learn to love it. And I think that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at. Can, <laughs> We're being indoctrinated by the Paolo Sorrentino can I, Bulgari commercial. Yeah. Can I have a non-TIFF TV pick and an NYFF pick? <laughs> <laughs> For two seconds. Sorry, these are one, we're like not actually responding to your prompt. <laughs> no, None of us have. <laughs> so my non-tiff pick is Beatrice's interview with Olivia Essayas in the new interview of Cinemascope. Yes, okay, that's which, a good pick. Yeah. Which squares, I'd, I'd which squares the circle of the not one but two podcasts we did about Irma Vesh and is a terrific interview. And my NYFF pick. And is pick, it online or it's... it's 
I don't know if the interview is going online, but it's in print and the magazine right. is twenty dollars. Yeah. Adam, my film comment podcast buddy forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then my NYFF pick for a movie I haven't seen was what Vadim uh, wrote about Tar, the Todd Field movie, which is one of the best pieces of film writing I've read this year, and I haven't seen the movie, but it's friggin' fantastic. Okay, we lo- the, Adam, I love these TIFF picks. These are great TIFF picks. Absolutely, because yeah. people uh, people tweet and circulate mostly just irritating tweets, and no one is actually digging into the writing that people do when they're here people like oh critics are in, in, in entitled in complaints like they also produce really good work yeah. so new issue of scope beatrice's interview with sas and vadim's piece on tar which is terrific thank you adam thank you adam you seek this flatter adam, us and, and um adam's pieces on the fablemans and the whale which i haven't read yet but i'm sure i haven't published my piece on the whale yet i'm just oh, gonna okay. but, but but the piece on the on the on the fablemans is up and there's some there's some really good writing on the fablemans from other people already have you got you know mark ash's piece on the fablemans yes who we had on the podcast all thank right thank you for we, having me on of course thank you guys for doing this thank you The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.